0: I want to read our text for this morning, if you want to turn there, I'll be in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and verse 25, a familiar passage to most of us. Matthew six twenty-five says, Jesus talking, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. As to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles... Eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful that when we gather, I never have to pray that you would give me the words to say because you have already given us a living and active word. And so, God, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit as we look to the text this morning. We pray with the psalmist in Psalm 119, open my eyes, O oh God, that I may behold the wonderful things that are within your word. God, we live in a world of anxiety. And the Christian, and only the Christian, has the necessary resource provision, and power to live a life of trust. And so God, would we look afresh at a text that may be familiar to us? And would you cause us, Lord, to live a life of dependency and trust in a good heavenly father? We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, hey, question for you. How many of you have ever named your car you had a, a name of your car growing up. Now, my theory is if you've ever named your car like Hank or Stella or Pearl or whatever it might be, your car is likely barely alive. Uh, no one names a new F-150 or a new Forerunner. Uh, the boss. No, normally that's a 1994 Toyota Corolla or a Honda Civic with 287,000 miles on it. And when I was growing up, I was one of seven children and my dad was a pastor. And so that often meant we got kind of the hand-me-down car from someone else that was gracious to give my dad a car. And my childhood car when I was a kid was a 1986 Chrysler LeBaron that my dad named the classic. It was named the classic, uh, in, in an ironic way because it was barely, barely drivable. You know, we would be driving on the way to school in Chicago and the muffler would fall off and we'd hear like a dunk, dunk, dunk. And we'd be like, look, look behind us. And it'd be steaming in the snow. My dad would be driving and the vinyl carpet on the roof of the car's interior would begin to peel down. And so my dad would be like, Johnny, go get one of those things from your teacher. Uh, I was like, a staple gun. And so we'd go bump, 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 bump. And we'd, you know, get that guy back up. The rear view mirror would fall off. And so we'd take some glue, tape it up. It was a a disaster. And our relationship with The classic was problematic. We'd have to pop the hood and hammer the starter to get that thing going. And you would think that we would uh, often be taking different visits to the mechanic, but we often tried to use our own home remedies to suppress the obvious issues that confronted us. Our relationship with the classic was defined by temporary fixes that enabled us to hopefully Drive another day. And like our relationship with the classic, is the world's approach to the issue and subject of anxiety. Temporary fixes that hopefully enable us to drive another day. Temporary alleviations that never truly solve the problem, but just try to manage the problem. Never to overcome anxiety, but just to get by. The world is anxious, is it not? You guys can turn on the news, look at your phone, and you'll be able to define what you see by a word, and it's called anxiety or fear or worry. And we live in a context of natural and national disasters, COVID, cancer, crisis, divorce, disease, decay, mandates, layoffs, elections, inflation. But sadly, many of the methods that are prescribed today to aid people In the world and in the church, for that matter, in their struggle against anxiety, are divorced from attacking the root cause that the Bible describes. Much could be said here, but anxiety is everywhere we look. And the world is searching for solutions to help people manage the issue. Now, what is anxiety? Anxiety comes from a compound Greek word, which is merom naon. It comes from two words. Merizo, which means to divide or to tear apart and nuos, which is the mind. And so if you put those two words together, it'll help us have a proper understanding of anxiety in and of itself. marizo, which means to tear and divide, and nuos, which means the mind. And you get this idea of a torn and divided mind, half-minded living. Now, I want to set up that there is a difference in the scripture between anxiety and a godly concern. You'll read in the epistles that Paul says he has a concern for the churches, and the same word is used there. So The question is, what's the difference between anxiety and concern? Well, stress and pressure and concern are not necessarily bad things at all. They're good things if they drive us to take, um, you know, just resources and to get after it. But worry and anxiety are much different than concern, especially when we're looking at the Scripture. Concern makes us do something about the situation, but worry burdens our hearts and minds without accomplishing a solution. Corey Ten Boom says, Worry is like racing the engine without letting in the clutch. You burn energy and you go nowhere. Now, you just came off of Thanksgiving, and uh, if you know me and, and the people in my fellowship group would, would know, or in my, our Bible study would know I'm a little bit of a broken record, I want to talk about the subject of anxiety, but I also want, as I do so, to remind you that as we go into the holiday season over the next month, that one of the greatest catalysts to gospel conversations is to be able to exhibit that you have peace, confidence, security, and trust in a world of chaos. And so as much as we approach the issue of anxiety, anxiety in of itself, and and the antithesis of that, which would be living in trust, is a tremendous catalyst to gospel conversations. Now, it's been said that we live in a world of anxiety, but I want to remind you that Ecclesiastes 1.9 says that there is nothing new under the what? There's nothing new under the sun, so which means that if there's nothing new, then this subject is old. And if there's nothing new, think with me before we assume, because our hearts get numb by assumption. Think and ask the question with me. Does God himself address this subject of anxiety and fear does the scripture actually say anything about this pervasive topic? And if it does, if, if it does, does it do so in a way that helps me not just to manage my anxiety, but to live a life of trust? And the answer to that question is an emphatic yes We're going to be in Matthew 6, but I want to take the scenic route with you to get there because I want you to understand what the scripture is saying collectively regarding the topic. I don't want to miss the wood for the trees as the saying goes. And so we asked the question this morning, how does God respond to anxious people? And it's not a foreign subject to me. I just want to let you know, even part of my my job in the summers, I work with close to 50,000 students a year um, in camping ministry. Uh, that are deeply anxious. And it's not just students, it's people around. I've held kids bleeding out in my arms because the best option for them seemed like to take their life at camp. I've been with people just crippled by anxiety. And I've seen the approaches that even the church has had to those people. There's two sides of the spectrum often. One is you're a victim and there's nothing you can do about it. And the other would be like, just stop it, cut it out. The Bible says to stop. And neither of those approaches are biblical. The Bible, when we look at this subject, is going to provide for us not just the answer to whether or not it's wrong, but the power to be able to overcome it. So how does God respond to anxious people? David in the Old Testament, is a warrior, a poet, and a king. He's the man after God's own heart. He's the author of numerous psalms, and he exposes his anxious heart and fearful heart throughout the psalms. This is the man of God in Psalm 13. He says, Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Is it forever, God? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my heart, with sorrow in my heart? Every single day. God, where are you, is David's cry often throughout the Psalms. He's anxious. 40% of the Psalms are lament, people pouring out their heart to God. I am comforted by the psalmist's total transparency before God. The Bible has no stoic denial of emotion. We live in a world of posturing and pretend and make up. How you doing, brother? Great. But in the Bible, there is no posturing before God. There are people in the Bible, godly people that pour out their souls in anguish before God. We see this not only with the poet King David, but also with the most blameless man on earth in the book of Job. Job is a wealthy, godly man that undergoes fiery trials, literally. And in a matter of 10 verses in the first chapter of the book of Job, his livestock, his servants, his family, his wealth, His house, they're all killed, burned, or stolen. And he is left there sitting in the mud with a shard of pottery, scraping off his boils with a wife that is telling him to curse God and die. And at the end of that first chapter, we're reminded of the famous line that we sing. Naked I have come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But 33 chapters later, Job is deeply, it never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. Why is he blackened, but not by the sun? It's because he's got sores all over his body. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I have become a brother of jackals and a companion of owls. When are owls awake and alert? At night, he's saying, I'm an insomniac. God, where are you? My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My lyre is tuned to mourning and my pipe to the sound of wailing. Wailing here literally means a high-pitched cry of grief and pain. Job is riddled with fear, anguish, despair. He says, terror overwhelms me. One more, because I want you to see a theme in the Old Testament. Think sometimes on a quest of just expositional preaching. I don't want us to miss what the scripture is saying. Collectively, because what Jesus is going to reinforce in Matthew 6 is the exact same thing. Elijah, the prophet of faithfulness who would get ushered up to heaven he defeats the prophets of Baal in a duel, right? In 1 Kings 18, he's saying, I'll show you who the true God is. His name is Yahweh. Why don't you do this? You build an altar, put a sacrifice on the altar, and then we'll call on our God to come down and consume that sacrifice. Whatever God comes down and consumes that sacrifice, that God is the legitimate God. And I'm going to show you today that Yahweh, he is the only God. And while the prophets of Baal are, tr- are just, it says that they begin to cut themselves so that their God would begin to care. They believe that Baal was an apathetic God, so in order to get Baal to care, they would scar and scratch themselves until the blood ran red over their entire body because maybe, maybe if they're in deep anguish and pain, their God would begin to care. Yahweh comes down, consumes the sacrifices, and it says the people of God that were watching, because Elijah wanted people to see, it says the people of God watching fell on their face and says, oh Yahweh, he is God. Oh Yahweh, he is God. Then Elijah takes those prophets down to Baal to the brook and slaughters them. This is a high point in Elijah's ministry. Next verse, next chapter, it says Jezebel sends word to Elijah, hey, whatever you've done to the prophets, the same will be done unto you. Elijah runs for his life, sits down under a tree, and says, God, take my life. I want to die. Kill me right now. He's so deeply riddled with anxiety and fear. He says, God, kill me. Doesn't sound, I mean, this is shocking, right? But nonetheless, biblical. He says, God, it is enough now, O Lord. Take my life. David is the man after God's own heart to whom every single king would be compared. Job is the most blameless man on earth. And Elijah is the prophet of faithfulness who sometime later would stand shoulder to shoulder with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they struggle like we. Now, the question is how does God respond to men such as these? How does God respond to the anxious? How does He respond to David's despair? How does He respond to the cry of Job? How does He respond to the fear of Elijah? How will Jesus respond to His followers as they sit on the Mount? There is one constant prescription provided to us by the great physician. God responds in a routine and uniform way all throughout the scripture to those who are anxious. He proclaims his own character. He proclaims his own character. In the moment of David's despair, David is reminded of the one that knows him. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. God's spirit working through David. says, where where can I go from your presence or where can I flee from you? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. David is reminded of the truth of who God is. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? David is asking this question because he is fearful, not because he has no fear. David is a courageous man and to live a life of courage, necessitates fear and job god responds by proclaiming his character in job chapter 38 job gird your loins dude where were you when i laid the foundations of the earth tell me tell me were you there job no do you tell the sea thus far you shall come and no further job have you ever in your life commanded the morning or caused the dawn to know its place do you bind the change of the star job talk to me do you can you lift up your voice to the clouds and tilt them so that the water jars come bursting? Do you send forth for the lightning? And the lightning responds and says, here we are. Where do you want us to strike? And Job says, I've always heard with my ears, but now I see you're God and I'm not. Job responds to God proclaiming his own character. God never says, cut it out. Put your big boy pants on. He says, no, let me tell you who I am because when you're anxious, it's revealing something about the absence of contemplative meditation upon who I am. This continues in Job for three chapters. God declares who he is. He doesn't explain their anxieties. He illuminates the root cause as a lack of faith and understanding in who he is. This is the same thing he'll do with Elijah. He's going to reveal a reality about his nature in all of these Old Testament responses, there are logical deductions that are to be drawn, a thinking and and contemplation that will bolster our faith in God in light of what he has declared. The Christian faith is not a check your brain at the door faith. You will not be able to live a life of trust if you are intellectually lazy. And Jesus knows this. I love that, and I love that about the scripture. I love that God is always saying, think, think with me. Did you command the morning? No, Job, who did that? I did. And in the New Testament, we're going to see the same thing. A long but necessary intro. There is a permanent prescription for worry and anxiety, and it's not given by any earthly doctor, but by our great physician. And what Jesus is going to show us in similar fashion is that the antidote to our anxiety is knowing and having faith in who God is. And here he is going to focus on the reality that God is our Father. Now as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, no point of this sermon, because chapters 5 through 7 in your Bible are one sermon, and Jesus isn't teaching it in three verses at a time, breaking it up. He's teaching a sermon. And so no point of this sermon can be understood in isolation from its whole The point of this whole sermon that Jesus is giving in chapters 5 through 7 is how the Christ follower is to live in light of who they are. Jesus is describing the kingdom of God. And it's not a kingdom initially with armies or with thrones or with crowns. It is an internal kingdom where the meek and humble and persecuted are described as blessed. The Sermon on the Mount does not say certain things like do this And live like this and utilize hope within us. The people whom Jesus is addressing, we think they're so different than us. But they lived under one of the most brutal regimes in world history. They constantly had to think through the future of their families, their finances, their relationships. And they lived with the reality and the prospect of suffering and violence that could break out at any moment in time. And Jesus is going to say, for this reason, in verse 25, does anybody have a different word there? Maybe you would have a, a therefore in Matthew six twenty-five. I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Now whenever you see the word therefore, If you've grown up in the church, you know that there are conclusions that Jesus is drawing from what was previously just just said. So when we start talking through a piece of scripture that starts with a therefore, especially in this context of anxiety, we must look before this because as Jesus gets to verse 25, the great physician is going to reveal three symptoms prior to coming to this verse that reveal what we might be anxious about before he prescribes the gospel cure. If you've ever been to the doctor, they don't immediately go for the pain point, do they? They don't say, ah, oh, my arm hurts. Is it here? No, they go, is it here? Is it here? Is it here? Is it here? And Jesus is a good physician. And so he's going to reveal things about our heart. Look back because we're going to look at three symptoms. In verse 19, the first symptom, because it's all in the same message and context, our anxieties reveal that we have misplaced treasure. In verses 19 and 20, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy And where thieves do not break in and steal. The great physician is poking and he's prodding. And what we will find is that the problem behind our anxiety is much deeper than we would initially think. What is the symptom here? Because Jesus is going to go straight into talking about anxiety. It's that we've put our treasure in the wrong storehouse. Jesus' message on anxiety is initially built on the foundation of a passage that is about our treasures, what we love. In that regard, anxieties reveal a misplaced treasure in our life, and that's often when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing, and when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, that ultimate thing in our life becomes an idol. It becomes our treasure. Jesus, does he not understand the difference between possessions and treasures? But he makes a distinction between them. The things that we hold with an open hand, those might be our possessions. But when we cling to those possessions, our people, those things become our treasures. And consequently, they concoct for us a recipe for anxiety. So many of our worries involve earthly things, our jobs, our health, our future, our marriages, our money, our possessions, our health, our children. We focus and fixate on them And then we attach our heart to them and then we live in perpetual worry about them. My favorite author is Dostoevsky and he says this, man, so long as he remains free, has no more constant and agonizing anxiety than to find as quickly as possible someone to worship. What we worry about, Jesus says, often reveals what we truly worship. Because we've placed our treasure in those people or those things. But not only do our anxieties reveal misplaced treasure, look next at verse 21 and 22. It says that we have misplaced eyes, eyes that have been set upon darkness. It says this in verse 22, sorry, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? You and I, we need a healthy eye. And if our eye is focused on things of passing value, then our minds will be full of darkness. And the more we look, the more we will crave. And the more we will crave for something that actually brings us lasting satisfaction. you It'd be interesting for your study, and I've done much on, on this subject, but just to look at the increased amount of time on social media with the increased exposure to anxiety in our context and culture. This isn't some sort of thing that would be relegated only to a Christian's perspective. Even a secular psychologist in the book Envy Theory is writing about how there is a constant rise of discontentment that produces anxiety. But not only that, it says the eye is the lamp of the body. Do you know that 92% of people that struggle with pornography also say that they are critically anxious? Because the eye is the lamp of the body. Polluted eyes, polluted thinking, anxious living. When we understand that the eye is the lamp of the body and apply that to a social media context where we can just perpetually saturate our minds with comparison and information and news, we begin to understand the validity of this idea. Not only that, but when we set our minds upon information to constantly be informed Information can become our idol because it's a way of us, a way for us to maintain control. My mother used to sing to me a song that you are likely familiar with. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. And what? It'll be always hard for you to turn your eyes upon Jesus when we are constantly turning our eyes to everyone and everything else. And when we are obsessed with turning our eyes to everyone and everything else, Jesus says, that's a recipe for an anxious heart. Now look at verse 24. Not only misplaced treasure, but we have misplaced eyes. And verse 24 is going to reveal that we are serving the wrong master. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus here gets right to the core. He says, you are trying to serve two masters. Similarly to how our anxieties reveal that which we treasure, our anxieties also serve as a synopsis to that which we serve. We are trying to serve two masters. And he's addressing his followers here, which means that the people that are listening to this, they want the blessings of the gospel. They want to be saved, but they can't let go of the super glue of the world. He's addressing people that are following him. He's saying, You're trying to serve two masters. You have conflicting masters. This is a recipe for anxiety. You can't serve me or someone else. You can't serve me in money. And then he's going to get to a therefore in verse 25. He's saying, Listen to me, listen to me. You have a misplaced treasure. You have misplaced eyes and you have been serving two masters. I alone will be your master. Therefore, do not be anxious. As to what you will drink or or what you will put in your body or put on, aren't you more than just the clothing? He doesn't probe and go line by line, tell me what you're anxious about, Peter Paul or Peter John you hear that? Legitimate. What are you anxious about? Mm, Grow up. What are you anxious about? He doesn't do that because illegitimate fears and anxieties are no less real than legitimate ones. And so he goes right to the core here. He goes straight to the heart of the matter and unveils to us that the foundation of our fear is a lack of faith. And this whole chapter in the Sermon on the Mount is focusing on who God is as father. And everything he's going to say here, which I love, For for someone that is constantly doubting or grew up in the church, just going, God, is this real? What Jesus is going to teach us and show us is that there is a logical flow to what he's about to say. There are deductions that should be drawn. And he wants his listeners to use their brain. And as we survey this text, 25 through 34, I I want you, for your own consideration, examine five observations about who God is as father that provides the remedies to our anxious heart and enables us to live a life of trust. First, in verses 25 and 26, our father, your father, if you're in Christ, is a father who deeply cares and values his children. And it says here, For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he's going to ask a question. Are you not worth much more than they? Permission to be myself. Jesus is not a walking commentary, Meaning that he he doesn't get up and he's not standing there on the Mount of Beatitudes going, Children, children, consider the birds. No, you know what he's doing? He wants us to think. He's a good teacher. Have you ever seen a first grade class? Listen, listen, eyes, eyes, ears, ears. Listen, listen. Everybody with me, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow nor reap, they don't elect captains of food acquisition. Who feeds the birds? Do they elect the chief supply chain officers? No, 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 they don't. Who feeds them? Your heavenly father feeds them. And he asks us a question. Did did I make birds in my image? Are birds made in the image of God? Did I choose my special birds before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1? No, birds aren't made in the image of God. And then he's going to ask a question, are you not worth much more than they? Because birds are not made in the image of God. Jesus did not die for the larks. He died for his children who were made in his image. And he's asking us a question because he wants us to think, are you not worth much more than them? Jesus is using a visual illustration here, as he often does, to prompt the processing and reasoning of our minds. Modern psychology tells us that anxiety is the, th- is the product of thinking too much. But Jesus tells us that anxiety is the product of thinking too little about our heavenly father. Modern psychology tells us that if you're anxious, you need to contemplate your inner child. Jesus says you need to contemplate and consider your heavenly father. Faith is a child of thought and meditation. It is not a flu shot. It's not blind trust. Faith is a reasoned response to revealed truth. Do you want to live a life of faith? Then you need to feed it with truth. And so when Jesus tells us to have faith, he doesn't say snap out of it, believe. He says, think with me. Look at those birds. He's a good teacher and he's mindful of our frame. Don't you love Psalm 103? He's mindful of our frame. He knows that we're dust. And so he's expecting and directing us to use our heads because the Christian faith is a thinking faith. And he says here that you're worth more than the birds. I care for you. In 1 Peter 5, these people that Peter is writing to lived under the prospect of suffering. And Peter says, cast all your cares on God because he cares for you. The readers of this letter were surrounded by people whose religious activity was being used to try to get their deities to care. Much like what we saw with the sacrifices and rituals in the Old Testament to garner the attention of Baal, they were trying to get their deity to care. And so when Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, he's going to say, Cast your cares and anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Do you know God doesn't just care for us on a macro level? He cares for you. And it's this Father upon whom we are called to cast our cares, not a distant Father, a caring Father. But the degree and comfort that you find in casting your cares upon God is always going to be dictated by the depth of understanding and intimacy you have with the Father you cast your cares upon. Casting your cares upon God brings little comfort to those who have little intimacy with Him as Father. The greater the intimacy, the greater the comfort. The greater the knowledge and understanding, the greater the comfort. And we can place our cares on a God who cares. And when we place them and cast them upon God, we also cannot bear them simultaneously. So first of all, we have a God, a heavenly father who cares. But second of all, in verse 27, we have a heavenly father who is absolutely sovereign. And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life. What's the answer? No one. Can you increase your life's duration by a single second? The conclusion must be drawn. No, you cannot. You cannot because the length of your life has already been predetermined, not by chance or fate, but by the God who is absolutely sovereign over your life. This isn't a New Testament idea. It's an Old Testament idea as well. Psalm 139, all of the days of my life were written in your book before one of them came to be. Every single Jewish believer there would have known. My life, my every second has been predetermined not by chance or fate, but by a God who has written every single moment of my life in his book Elon Musk can buy absolutely anything he wants. Islands, planes, teams. He can buy everything except for one thing. Another day on planet Earth. That has been allotted and predetermined by God. Because God is sovereign. But one thing as we look at God's sovereignty, we can never look at God's attributes as pieces of a pie. We talked about this last month but they're always in relation to each other, which means that we can never depersonalize God's sovereignty from his care or for, from who he is as father. God is not some distant composer of the universe. He is a father who is overruling and orchestrating all events, circumstances, and situations in time on this earth for children he deeply loves, cares, and values. In Popper's guy through translation, I was a witch doctor Um, you know, X, Y, and Z, they're wearing loincloths. And I'll never, ever forget when a guy who was the lead witch doctor in the tribe who had come to know the Lord because his child had polio and he couldn't heal his son and he realized that there was no true power in what he was doing, uh, he began to pray And he knows three words in English, and he uses them at the beginning of every prayer. He's about five foot one, puts his hands together and says, dear Papa God, and then speaks and clicks and everything else. There's three words that he uses and borrows from English to represent the intimacy That he has not just with a sovereign orchestrator and composer, but with a near father. We've become so familiar with praying, dear heavenly father, that its meaning has lost, has been lost on us. We've become numb to the preciousness. And and these people and the tribes, for the first time, you're telling me that the God who created all things, that causes the sun to shine, that causes plants to grow, the creator of the universe, the creator of me, calls me son and so when we look at god's sovereignty we can also say i'm so thankful that the one who is sovereign is my father john stott says this a christian's freedom from anxiety is not due to some guaranteed freedom from trouble but to the confidence that god is our father and that even permitted suffering is within the orbit of his care god's sovereignty is never divorced from his care for your life So when life assails us, we can know that he is in control and that he lisps with us. He is mindful of our frame. He knows that we are dust. So our heavenly father cares. Our heavenly father is sovereign. Verses 28 and 29. Our heavenly father provides. He says, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon... In all of his glory, clothes himself like one of these. Jesus is a masterful teacher. So he's causing us to consider something else in the environment around them. These are common flowers. And yet the glory of Solomon was proverbial amongst the Jews. His mansions, his cups, pure gold, his furniture, Read Kings and Chronicles. And yet Jesus says all of this pales in comparison to a flower that no human eye would ever even see. A human flower, a flower that's there that will get burned up and used as a source of fuel. He says, observe these flowers, the form, the texture, the color. No man can create one of these. These flowers are unseen often by no one except for me. They are fleeting, they are cut down and they are used as fuel. And the moment you cut them, they even put in your house, they begin to die. They are here today with beauty, but they are gone tomorrow. These flowers are mortal and yet God provides for them. They are not the agents behind photosynthesis. God is, and God provides and cares for them. These birds, these flowers, they're mortal. They don't have a soul But you are not merely a lifespan. You are immortal in an eternal sense. You have been given a soul that lasts for eternity. God provides us our needs in a physical sense. But the greatest need God has ever provided is in a spiritual sense. He has provided us with reconciliation with God. And this is what Romans 8 is talking about, right? We sang part of this this morning. Romans eight thirty one. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's not just a rhetorical question. It's a syllogistical question, meaning that there is absolutely no uncertainty here. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. He who did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all. Will he not freely give us all things that he's given us in Christ? If God is for us, who can be against us? Has he not given you everything that you need? Has your greatest need in life not already been met in Christ? Have you not already been reconciled to a holy God? When you're anxious, Jesus says, I have provided all of your needs. Your greatest need in life has already been met. You have received forgiveness, not because of what you've done or because of what you've earned, but because I've paid it all. And every anxious thought put against the backdrop of this reality I will provide all of your needs and life itself is a gift from me and I don't give gifts that I don't plan on sustaining. And the second I stop sustaining that gift is the second you were predetermined to come home to me. If life is a gift, I give the batteries. You don't supply the batteries. I give the gift and I give the power. I supply the power. I keep it alive. And I've given you life. This provision also reveals our Father's goodness. A goodness that isn't predicated upon our, our context or circumstances, but by his character. I mentioned the name Corrie ten Boom. And Corrie ten Boom, if you're unfamiliar with her story, w- was an agent behind saving many Jewish people during the Holocaust. And her writing on anxiety has been the most helpful for me as I've talked about it and studied it. Um... She watched her friends, her family killed in front of her eyes, spent time in a concentration camp. And she says this regarding the goodness of God. Often I have heard people say, how good God is. We pray that it would rain or we pray that it would not rain for our church picnic. And yet look at this lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather. But God was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. I remember one occasion when I was very discouraged there. Everything around us was dark and there was darkness in my heart. I remember telling Betsy, my sister, that I thought God had forgotten us. No, Corey, said Betsy. He has not forgotten us. Remember his word. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. There is an ocean of God's love available. There is plenty for everyone. May we never doubt God's goodness, whatever the circumstance. God's goodness is not based upon our circumstances. It's based upon his character. And so when God calls us to consider what we're anxious about, he goes, don't you get it? Don't you know who I am? I'm good. And because God is good and because he's sovereign and because he cares and values his children. Number four, in verses 30 through 32, anxiety is an offense to our heavenly father. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you a little faith? Do not worry then for your fear, grieves God. It grieves God. It's not just that God doesn't like certain things. He goes, Mm-mm. he goes, it grieves him because he's causing us to consider, don't you know who I am? Don't you know? I did not die for the larks or the lilies. I died for you. Have you not met every single need you have, including your greatest spiritual need? He says, you have little faith. This is what the Gentiles do. Those are people that don't know me. That's what he's referring to here. It's not the absence of faith. It's the inadequacy of your faith. You may have faith salvifically, but you've left it there salvifically, and you've never developed that faith. Even in dark times, film is developed in a dark room. Don't you know that I'm there even in the dark? He says, maybe you've believed salvifically, but don't, but don't you know you've never gone beyond that and you've robbed yourself of the peace, comfort, security, and hope that only I can provide. Worry is almost always rooted, Jesus says, in a weakness of our faith in who God is as father. Yes, there are symptoms, but those symptoms stem from a root cause. And that root cause is that we don't have great faith in a great heavenly father Our Lord is very concerned about this, so he bids us to feed our faith with truth. It is not enough to have faith. We must apply faith, and that requires thinking and meditation, not just a strolling to church, not just Bible study one day a week. It requires daily thinking, and we have to feed that faith every single day because the storms of life will crash in our face. One last consideration for this morning as we... Think about who our heavenly father is. And if we look elsewhere in the scripture, we will see that our heavenly father sent his son who is no stranger to suffering. Do you know that when God tells you to not be anxious, when Jesus tells you that, it's, it's not because he does not sympathize. We have a high priest who does sympathize. Jesus knows all about our trouble, and there is no friend like Jesus. He is touched by our infirmities. Have you ever read when he looks out on the crowd? He's moved with compassion. He weeps at the grave of a friend. He was burdened. He cares. He comforts. The, less, uh, the danger of a less-than-human Christ is as dangerous as a less-than-divine Christ. So if we fail to recognize his humanity, Jesus is no stranger to suffering. And his awareness of our own human frailties are evidenced as his most common greeting to people is what? Fear not. The number one negative prohibition in the Bible, 365 times, is do not fear. Because he knows our own propensities. He knows our own heart because he was human, he says, fear not, still we are creatures in spite of the faith that's been given to us that live in anxiety at times. This Sermon on the mountain doesn't just detail for us the demands of the gospel, but it provides for us the power and the supply that only Christ brings. You cannot live a life of trust outside of God's power and outside of God's spirit. In fact, you can't live one single moment of faithfulness to God outside of the power of his spirit. You can't live a single moment of trust He died for you, friends. And if you're in Christ, every anxious thought and every fear you have can be put against the backdrop of my heavenly father cares for me. And this is not just communicated, it's what? Demonstrated. Because Christ died for us while we were still yet what? Sinners. And I know that he is working all things out for good. It might not taste good, feel good or seem good, but the Lord is using it for my good and his glory. The gospel doesn't call us to some sort of glossy, heartless, triumphant spirit that's fake. Tears are real. And so is my savior's love for me. And so is my heavenly home. My possessions may perish. They may become defiled. They may fade. But my inheritance and your inheritance, if you're in Christ, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading for me in Christ Jesus. A poem to close. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is He. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know He watches me. Let not your heart be troubled, his tender word I hear. And resting on his goodness, I lose my doubts and fears. Though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Whenever I am tempted, whenever clouds arise, when songs give place to sighing, and when hope within me dies, I draw the closer to him. From care he sets me free. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he cares for me. God, we thank you that you care for us. In Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. God, our faith must be fed by a constant deepening exposure to who you are. The unbeliever cannot understand this, and yet this serves as a gospel catalyst. God, I pray that we would be a faithful witness and manifest not some sort of fake, glossy, everything's okay, but a trust rooted in your character and providence. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.